How's everybody doing? It's been a while. So let's stay away from yesterday for all of our sakes. And uh, so I'm going to go with the Thanksgiving theme for an opening joke here. So there was a family, uh, a mom and dad and a little boy. And they were just having a nice dinner together, and they, they kind of dressed up, and they were at home, but they wanted it to feel real fancy. And so about midway through, the little boy kind of looks up, and he's like, hey, Dad, do you do worms taste nice when people eat them? And so that's a typical little boy question, but the dad is like, hey, we don't talk about this stuff at the dinner table. Let's just have a nice dinner. And so they continued the dinner. Afterwards, he pulled the little boy aside, and he's like, do you understand why we don't talk about that? And, and just why did you have to ask that question then? And he's like, well, there was one in your stuffing, and so I just figured you might, must like it. <laughs> so, so we are ending the Grateful series today. And so far, Andy has talked about being grateful for the past, the present, the future. Now, we know what's left. It's eternity. And so I want to talk about being grateful for eternity, being grateful for, for what we have in front of us, for what we have in store. But to get there, I want to be thankful for his plan, for, for everything that leads us to that moment. And, and to me, and I've talked about this several times before, Revelation shows so much about the promise, the, the hope, the glory of God's plan. So we're going to go there today and about just the endless love that he has for us, that you can see throughout Revelation. So we go to Revelation chapter 10, verses one, verse 1. Then I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret what the seven thunders said, and do not write it down. So Revelation 9 ends off with uh, the blowing of the sixth trumpet. And it's kind of the tribulation stuff, and we've talked about that, and you guys, I'm sure, know about that. And so it's kind of an interlude, in a way, for Revelation 10 to have all of these things that we're about to read and about the angel and the scroll or the little book and, and just about this kind of pause in the action, so to speak. And it's not for dramatic purposes, but it's for mercy. And it shows us again how the entirety of the end times plan is designed for mercy, for hope, for love. Because after the sixth trumpet, there's this pause, this peace where people have another chance. And in fact, like I said, all of end times is for people to have another chance and another chance and another chance. You see, God could have ended things at any point. He could snap his fingers and it's done, but that would be instant and people wouldn't have that extra chance. But he's so filled with love, so filled with, with hope, with mercy, that he wants to continue to give chances for people to have an eternity with him. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he cares for us. That's how much he has planned everything. And we see as we go through the scripture, uh, an angel, and maybe it's Gabriel because it refers to him as a, a messenger. Maybe it's Michael. It doesn't really matter who the angel is. But you see first, this is through John's eyes, you see a rainbow over his head. Now, obviously that symbolizes God's plan. 
But it's also science, because if you're looking through the clouds and through the rain, you see rainbows. And it reminds us that God is not exempt from science. God created science for us, for us to have this wonderful thing to connect things. And and so it, it reminds us that God is in control of everything. God is over everything, and it's this little cool look at it. And then the angel has a little book and a small scroll, whichever way you want to talk about it. Uh, and it's, there's a few scrolls throughout Revelation, and the short answer here is we have no idea what's on any of them. This one specifically, uh, maybe it was God's plan, like his official end times plan. Maybe it was the book of Revelation. Maybe it was something that we can't imagine. Uh, regardless, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But the angel stands with his foot on the sea and his foot on the land, which again symbolizes that God is in control of everything. There is nothing that escapes his notice. And I know that things seem chaotic and it can be scary. And we look through Revelation and it can be scary. And it's like, how can this happen? What is this going to be like? God is in control and he has a plan and he will help us to make it through it if we trust him. And it's so amazing to see this unfold. And it's such a gift to see this unfold. So it talks about him speaking with the voice of seven thunders. Uh, If you go back to Psalm 29, it refers to the thunderous voice of God. And the phrase voice of the Lord is repeated seven times. So this is a reference back to the Old Testament. But it's also saying, hey, God's voice is thunderous. God's voice is over everything. And the angel is speaking with God's voice. He's speaking for God, what God has told him to do. And now the big one. Why didn't he write it down? Why wasn't he allowed to write it down? Why couldn't John have just done this so we could all know when it would happen? And I will tell you this, it drives commentators and theologians crazy that there is this point in the Bible where it just says, hey, we're not going to put it. Now, I am neither of those things, so I'm okay with it, Uh, but all of us, if we were to ask, if somebody were to come in with a camera and a microphone is what they're called, I'm used to the headset things or whatever this is, and to ask each of us, why don't we know when end times will happen, we would all pretty much say the pat church answer of, well, because we're not supposed to know. Because it's God's plan, and it's better for us to not know so that we don't wait for it or or et cetera, et cetera. But still, we all kind of want to know. And over and over again, even though we know that it's kept secret for a reason, every generation of believers has wanted to know. The disciples believed they were the last generation, and they wanted to know. Paul's generation that followed, they believed that the end times were there, and they wanted to know. Every generation throughout time, including now, we will look at things and we will see things. And it's like, well, this fits, this fits, this fits. And we want to know. And I wonder, do we want to know? Because we're so excited to get to heaven. We're so excited for people to have a chance. Or do we want to know because there's some kind of weird honor in being the last generation alive? Because as much as we should all want to get to heaven, equal to that should be a desire for everyone else to have more opportunity to get to heaven. 
And they see that through us, through how we treat them, through how we love, through how we worship, through how we are. Now, my feel on this and why it's kept secret is that whatever was said was pertinent to that time. And whatever it was said, maybe it was about Jim Harbaugh, or maybe it was about Joe Burrow, or maybe it was about something else that we could be like, oh, well, I know this is in this range, and we could place it. And so I think it was very pertinent to that time, to the people of the time, whenever it is going to be. But us not knowing, that is such a mercy. And it is something for which we should all be grateful. Now, as I said, it's been a while since I've been up here. So I figure all of you are really, really missing C.S. Lewis. (laughs) So I am using all three quotes today from C.S. Lewis. So let's go with the first one. We ought to give thanks for all fortune, if it is good, because it is good, if bad, because it works in us, patience, humility, and the contempt of this world and the hope of our eternal country, to give thanks for everything, to give thanks for not knowing, to give thanks for the bad, to give thanks for the good. This does not mean when something awful happens that you should be so happy and joyful. There are things in my life that are very difficult to deal with. And I'm not joyful for those things. But I know that there's a plan. And I know that I can learn from them. And so I'm open to that. And we have to be open to that and be thankful. And, and to put this on a, an eternal type of scale. Let's talk about why we shouldn't know when the end times are going to happen. Not, not just, oh, well, you know, it's a secret and, and it should be God's plan and this is, should be what it is. But, but the actual why, and Beatrice is a big fan of asking why. And the other day we were at the Children's Museum and there was a meteorite. And so uh, I'm like, hey, that's a meteorite. It came from space. Why? Well, because it was near the atmosphere and it fell through. Why? Well, because you know how a magnet works? No. Well, um, and so I kept going and we kept going through the why. And so we all have those whys. So let's look at why. Well, let's imagine that we know. And it's the year, I'm just going to say, I forgot for a moment what year it is now. Well, let's just say it's 2352. It's a decent ways away. Most of us will be gone by then. And let's imagine that it's then. And we all know. Well, there's really no urgency then. We know we have our whole lives. And, and you know, we're going to go to church and we're going to do what we need to do. But are we really going to have a passion for helping other people, for loving other people, for showing them the way. Sure, there's still the, we want people to have Jesus, but knowing, hey, it's 300 years away, 200 years away, I'm not going to have to worry about that. And let's flip it. Let's say that it's soon. Let's say we find out that it is next Tuesday. Well, most of us would get really, really antsy. And, you know, it's kind of like if I have an inspection coming for my apartment. I clean a lot the night before. Not that I never clean. Not, you know. <laughs> but I really, really clean the night before. And so we'd be like, oh, it's next Tuesday. You would be much more urgent, obviously. But we'd also be much more impatient with other people. 
Because we know what's coming, and it's like, you've got to understand. And in a way, that's kind of good, but it would also lead to much more judginess and much more anger. And it would make us much, much harsher, probably. I would ask, how many of you in your lives, when you were kids, and so for some of you, you have to think back a couple years, five. And so I would ask, how many of you ever had a situation where you had to find out exactly when your parents were going to be home so that you could clean up or you could do this or you could do that or you could get things together? And I would ask that, but the force of wind from all of the hands going up would probably knock me over. (laughs) And so we know that if we knew the date, we would wait. Again, we'd have the moments of, of mission and evangelism and all this, but we'd still wait. Like, I've got, I know exactly when I have. And God knows all of that. And so we have to be thankful not to know. Thankful for the good that comes with it. Thankful for the bad that we deal with in the time. Because we always have this hope. We always have this chance. And again, I get that it's hard to be thankful for bad things, for, for job losses, for hurts, for, for losing people, for whatever else happens in our lives that's negative. But we know that one day, everything will be complete. And one day, we will live in perfection. And one day, we will see our people again. And one day, we will feel complete love. And we can be thankful for that. So the hope for eternity, because we don't know when the end times are, because we don't know when our time ends, the hope for eternity gets to carry us throughout our entire lives, not just one point. Going back to the scripture, this is verse 5. Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them, the earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said, there will be no more delay. When the seventh angel blows his trumpet, God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced it to his servants, the prophets. Again, mercy is why we have more time. Mercy is why we don't know. God's mercy, God's grace is why the end times come in stages and not all at once. And if you look through Revelation or you look through Daniel or you look through places where it's described or talked about, we can kind of put together a little bit of what it's going to look like. But it's mercy and hope for us, for our souls, that we get those stages because And you may be like, what? But why does it have to end anyway? Why doesn't the earth keep going? Or why doesn't life keep going? Well, everything comes to an end. We are born knowing that we come to an end. Uh, The earth will at some point come to an end. And let's go to science for a second. If you've heard different, there are different theories, but to simplify a little bit, at some point, a long, long, long way in the future, The sun is going to expand and then shrink or explode, however you want to put it. And that's going to end all life anyway. Or maybe an asteroid or a meteor or a comet is going to come by. Because statistically speaking, at some point that's going to happen. And occasionally we'll hear stories after the fact where like one went right by the earth and kind of skimmed us and gave the earth a little bit of a haircut. And God knows this. He knows that... that The earth is at some point going to end, and so that goes into his plan. He's going to save us from some random chance and end it 
when he wants it ended so that we don't have to go through that, so that future generations don't have to go through that, so that we know there's a plan. God's plan covers for everything, but still there is an end. And it refers to his mysterious plan, to the mystery. That's not mystery in the way that we would say it. It's not a Sherlock Holmes tale. Although those are pretty good. Or Agatha Christie, whoever floats your boat on that. It's more used throughout the Bible as something that can't fully be known, which I get is similar, but it relates to God. And so like the purpose of the church is referred to as the mysterious plan of God or God's mysterious plan. Uh, The living presence of Jesus in the believer, the gospel, all of these things throughout the Bible will have mystery attached to them. Not that they can't be known at all, but that they can't fully be known. Because God is more than we can understand. (coughs) Excuse me. God is more than we can fully know. But each of these things and the plan and the life and the gospel can be held and felt and shared because God is more. Because not only does he have a plan for all of eternity and for all of life and for the earth, but for each of us. And we get to play a part in that plan. We we get to follow him. We get to find him. We get to show him. We get to love him. But the idea of end is hard. Whether it's the end of all things, the end of time, or just the end of our lives. It can be scary. Even as a Christian, knowing where we're going to go. Because as bad as the world is, there's still a lot of good. We have families. We have the hope of a healthy Joe Burrow someday. Maybe. Or maybe Browning is going to be the next Brady. I've heard that lately. But we have hope and we have love and we have all of these things that we love, even though there's a lot of difficult things. We have the college basketball season because the other one's done. For me too. I had a question in confirmation. And it was basically, I'm going to paraphrase it, but it was basically, how does eternity feel? The person couldn't grasp what it feels like to have just an eternity because we understand time as we understand time. Now, we felt like something's an eternity, like maybe you're sitting there and you're listening to the pastor speak and you look at your watch and you're like, oh man, it's, I don't know what time it is, so that's probably good. It's whatever, 10.05. And then you look at your watch and a long time from now, and it's like, it's 10.06, he's been talking forever. <laughs> and so we know kind of what eternity feels like. But to imagine just no time at all, because time is a human concept. God created it for us. In heaven, there's no beginning and end, no time. And it's impossible for us to put our heads around that. If I were to say, in the beginning, God created everything, we get that, but God existed before the beginning. And now we're like, wait, What? And so we don't grasp all of this, but we do know one thing. I have another quote. There are far, far better things ahead than any we leave behind. We can all imagine and dream about what heaven is going to be like, about what eternity will feel like, about what it's going to be like. And maybe your life has been a struggle. 
And maybe you've lost a lot of people and lost a lot of things and, and you always feel like you're living paycheck to paycheck or day to day or hour to hour and it just is such a hard thing. And so it's hard for you to imagine an eternity without that. It's hard for you to imagine just feeling completely loved and safe and complete. Let's say your life's been pretty good and you really like everything and you've got a good family or, or friends or whatever it is well, then it's kind of hard to imagine not having that or having something different. And so we all picture heaven in different ways and we all think about it in different ways and we can't quite grasp it because, again, we don't understand this. But no matter what we talk about or dream about or imagine, it's better. It's beyond anything we can imagine because Jesus said so. He said, this is going to be a perfect place, guys. And we can look in the Garden of Eden and see how it was perfect for a time. Well, this is going to be perfect, and we can't mess it up this time. Because for the first time ever, we're going to be fully complete without the corruption and the decay of the world. We're going to feel fully loved. We're going to be at home. We're going to know God everywhere. And it's going to be this amazing thing that we can be thankful for. And it's hard to imagine, and it's hard to leave people behind. And it's hard to lose things, and it's hard to, to give up life. But we can be grateful for the time we have, and more than that, grateful that one day we have all of the time in the world, and more. One day we will see those people again, hopefully. We will feel complete. We will feel loved. We will feel whole. Now imagine that there's no revelation and there's no talk of heaven. Imagine that this is it. Now maybe it would add a little bit of joy to life in that, well, I've got to really enjoy this short-term stuff because it's all I got. But man, as you got closer to the end, it'd just be dread and fear and anger and hurt. And we already feel that sometimes, but because, because we have something more ahead, perfection ahead, we can be grateful. We can be thankful. We can be hopeful. To end the scripture here, verse 8. Then the voice from heaven spoke to me again. Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, it turned sour in my stomach. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So this is the stuff that sometimes makes people iffy about Revelation. And it's like, what? Why did he just eat a book? <laughs> I've tried that before, and it's not very good. When I was told to devour knowledge, this isn't what I thought it meant. One step too far, that's fine. <laughs> it's good to know the line. Uh, but if you go back to Ezekiel 3, there was a similar command given about taking the word in like that. And it's not a literal, go eat the Bible, or go eat God's plan, or go eat this. But John read what was on the scroll, and he took it in completely, just like we do with God's word, with God's plan, with the Bible. And so essentially, John learns all of this, and he feels such hope and love as, as the fact for knowing the fact that God has a plan, for knowing that he's going to get to see his brothers that have fallen again. 
for knowing that there's an eternity of love, for knowing that so many people are going to make it. But also he feels a sour feeling knowing that some people are going to turn away stones. There's a point, and I'm not going to cover this, but there's a point where it talks about a thousand years of peace after Armageddon, kind of, or after the end times in Revelation. And during that thousand years, it talks about the devil being chained up and not being there. And even with Jesus on earth ruling, and even with the devil not chained up, there are people that turn away. And so John sees all of that, and he's like, man, some people just aren't going to get it. Why? And so that's sour. But it doesn't stop there. Because the angel and God through him says, I know you're old, buddy, because this is near the end of John's life, somewhere around 95, 80 or so. I know you're old. And remember, he's the last living disciple. He's watched everybody else go. And he's exiled. And he probably feels like this is the end of my life. But the voice of God says, you may be old. And your life may be near the end. But you're going to go preach still. And as long as you are on this earth, I want you to share this word. I want you to share this gospel. I want you to help bring more and more people to me. Because you have to love them. Not just the people you like, but everyone. And here's the thing. It wasn't just John that was given that command. It is each and every one of us throughout all of time to prophesy again, to love everybody, to live our lives for him, showing people who he is. Final quote. Do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you do. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you love someone, you will presently come to love him. Benjamin Franklin had a twist on that a little bit. His came before, but still. He basically said, his was like the opposite in a way, but the same idea. He basically said, if you think somebody hates you, ask them to do something for you. And then you'll find that they turn up loving you. So like if you're like, my neighbor really hates me. So you ask them, hey, I'm going to be gone. Can you water my plants or mow my yard? That's probably a bridge too far, but ask them to do something. Well, we are hardwired to think if I'm doing something for somebody, then I must like them. And so little by little, they come to love you. And so over and over again, we're like, I know God said love everybody, but... Purdue fans? Sorry. Michigan fans? Steelers fans? Like everybody? People that vote differently than me? People that believe differently than me? I'm supposed to love everybody? Yeah. Yeah, because Jesus did. Because God does. And this tells you, yeah, it's going to be hard. It is. And we sometimes gloss over that part in church. It is hard sometimes to love everyone. Because sometimes people are jerks. And sometimes people have no idea how roundabouts work. <laughs> and they believe that yield signs mean stop for about an hour and a half. Or sometimes people on the interstate... I could just stop there. Sometimes people are on the interstate. Sometimes it's really, really hard. 
And so we act as if we do. That's not being fake. It's helping ourselves and helping them. So we treat them with love. And as we do that, we realize, oh, I do love them. Because we do if we just let it happen, if we trust him. Because again, Jesus loves everyone. Now, after all of this revelation that I've read, there are two witnesses, and, and there's more about the Antichrist or the beast, and there's a lot of fun stuff. And maybe I'll cover that later. But now we talk about our call and what we do with all of this gratefulness for eternity, with this endless love that we are shown. Well, we love others. Andy talked about past, present, and future, and we see God in all of that. And we obviously see God in eternity, so we have to show people what that means. We have to show people what he's done for us. We have to show people how. Because they just won't listen, because they just don't like me, because I just don't like them, because they're really annoying. Because I'm really annoying. We look at Jesus' life. And one of the things I love to point out is there were 12 disciples that went with him everywhere all the time. Two of them betrayed him, because I count Peter's denial as a betrayal. One of them, Judas, stole from him and, and probably talked about him and betrayed him, and you could argue different things about him. Because I still think that he thought Jesus was truly the Son of God, and so he thought he'd kind of get out of this with some money, and then Jesus would be okay. And so when he died, he really was like, whoa, I messed up. But regardless, Jesus knew all of this because he knew their hearts. And not long before he was to be arrested and crucified, based on the betrayal of Judas, he washed all of the disciples' feet, including Judas's. Because he loved each and every one of them. And he loved each and every one of the people that threw rocks at him, that yelled things at him. He loved each and every one of the people that mocked him while he was on the cross. He loved each and every one of the Pharisees that walked around questioning him and trying to trap him and hurting his followers. He loved each and every one of the people that persecuted the church. Doesn't mean he agreed with them. But he loved them completely. And too often, we focus just on the command. Just on the don't do this and do this. Just on the law part. Which I'm not saying not to focus on that. But too often we focus just on that. And we miss the whole love others part. We have to. Look at the world. Go home and turn on the news. Whichever one, I don't care. You're going to see something bad. Something negative. Something scary. We have two choices on how to respond to that. We can respond to that darkness with more darkness, and exponentially the world gets darker. Or we can respond to it with love, with light, with hope, with mercy, with grace, just like Jesus does. And that is a change. That is a change. And that's something we have to do, sometimes throughout time. The church looks around and wonders why aren't more people here? Now, in the days of Rome when the church was being persecuted, the church was exploding because you really had to choose. And so more and more people came. 
And then as soon, the only thing Rome ever did that kind of hurt the church was make it the official religion, because as soon as that happened, it's like, ah, this is a club. This is what we do. And throughout time, there have been ups and downs. And we come and we wonder and things happen. And what about society and what about schedules and people's priorities? And yes, all of that matters. But this ties into something I've said before, probably last year. We always look at things from our perspective. And we think, hey, Christmas is this wonderful time where everybody feels good. That's the best time for people to come to church. They're more receptive. It's not because of the season. It's because this time of the year, we act more like Jesus. The church acts more like the church. And then the other 11 months, or 10 minus Easter month, we're kind of business as usual. If we would act like this all of the time, the wonderful songs we heard sung. If we would live like this all of the time. No. Not everyone in the world would turn to Jesus and come to church, but some would. More would. I get that numbers matter, but it's not about numbers. It's about souls. It is about helping others see Jesus. And sometimes we forget that it's not about our way. It's about his. And we can be grateful that with eternity ahead of us, we get to live each day pointing people towards that and helping people to see why it matters and what Jesus' love means and what it means to feel accepted in him. That's our call. That's who we are. Not just Christmas time, all of the time. He did not say, try to love everybody. He said, do it. So, let's do it. That's all I got.